This podcast is a publication of the Engineering Management Institute, where we are committed to building professional development systems, including project management and people leadership programs that support the growth of engineers and their firms. Download our AE Industry Trends Report for insights on the great resignation, remote work productivity, and people-centric cultures. To get your copy, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Welcome to this episode of the Civil Engineering Podcast, the first podcast dedicated to helping civil engineering professionals succeed in work and life. I'm your host, Anthony Fasano, and in this episode of the Civil Engineering Podcast, I'll be talking with architect and coach Douglas Teeger. Doug is highly experienced in the AEC field, and he's spent over 40 years working in the industry, and he's become an expert on many topics, but one of them that resonates with a lot of us, which is the topic for today, work-life balance. How does one maintain work-life balance in an industry, in a career that's as demanding as civil engineering in this kind of high-pressure infrastructure world that we live in today? Well, you know what? Doug has done it, and he's going to share with you strategies that he's used and that he's helped his clients use to become more well-balanced and just improve their overall well-being. This was an awesome, awesome conversation, and I'm thrilled to share it with you. Before we go on, here's a quick word from our sponsor for this episode, Collier's Engineering and Design. Thank you to EMI sponsor Collier's Engineering and Design, a full-service A&E firm with more than 2,200 employees in over 60 offices nationwide. As an industry leader, Collier's Engineering and Design has a responsibility to ensure the built environment is constructed with a commitment to the inclusivity, health, and welfare of our people, clients, and communities. Their expansion has fostered an enterprising culture that provides continued opportunities for employees to grow their careers while accelerating their personal and professional development within the company. For more information about how you can join their team, find them on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, or visit colliersengineering.com. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, now I'd like to welcome our guest onto the show for today. Douglas Teeger is the founder of Teeger Consulting. He's also had 40 years in the industry as an architect, as a coach, and he's really interested in inspiring people to do what they love and love what they do. Doug, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Anthony. Great to be here. No, I'm happy to have you. I mean, I can't say we've had a lot of architects on the Civil Engineering Podcast, but I think it's important because we work with a lot of architects as civil engineers, so you need to be well-rounded and you need to get different perspectives. And you have done a lot around work-life balance, which is the topic for today, which we'll dive into in just a few minutes here. But before we do that, Doug, maybe you can kind of just briefly introduce yourself to the listeners and talk a little bit about what you kind of do on a day-to-day basis. I had an amazing journey in my career in life. I went to Cornell, graduated the Fiverr program in four years. Not proud of that. I'll talk more about that later. Uh, then, you know, I went to work. I knew I wanted to work for a large firm, medium firm, small firm. Started with a 300-person firm in New York doing some great projects. My first project was the renovation for the Statue of Liberty, which I had to do the as-built drawings. And this is an engineering question. So when the, uh, quick aside, but a great story, when the Statue of Liberty was built in France, they erected the structure first and then put the skin on it. When they dismantled it and shipped it to the US, 
in the U.S.'s wisdom, how do we increase and make it quicker? They were erecting the frame and the skin at the same time. When they got up to the arm, it shifted 18 inches off the center line of the bolting. In their infinite wisdom, they just drew new with that, uh, attached new bolts. So over time, the arm was failing. When we renovated uh, the structure, we had to engineer and you know work with engineers of, of how to resupport that so it doesn't fail or get worse. This is 191982 pre-CAD, having to do as built for that structure and the skin by hand. So that was my uh, intro course out of college, which was amazing. And then uh, you know I went to a medium-sized office, Arthur Erickson, doing a lot of uh, great buildings. I worked on the San Diego Convention Center, doing the roof tinsel structure, and then went to a very small firm doing high-end houses for the entertainment industry. And at that point, you know, my goal was I wanted to, my whole early part of my career, I'll be happy when. And that's why I wanted to get done with school. I'll be happy when I'm working. When I'm working, I'll be happy when I had these three experiences. When I have those three experiences, I'll be happy when I have my own firm. When I have my own firm, I'll be happy when I'm married. It was always putting things in the future. And it took going and getting a master's in spiritual psychology very later in my life. In 2007, I was uh, 47 years old. And that shifted my life. So after getting experience in small, medium, and large, I started my own practice as a solo practitioner. I grew that to a 32-person firm where I became the managing partner. So I gave up the creative side and created best practices for how to really develop a firm culture where creativity thrived and drama didn't exist and how to do work effectively and to manage that work. And I know you do a lot of work with project managers. So it's teaching that skill set that a lot of people aren't taught in school. I mean, they're taught how to design, how to engineer, but how do you become a great leader? How do you run a firm where culture is the most important thing? Your staff is the most important thing. Your resources is really your staff. How do we make them the most important part of your company and create a culture where they feel that they're the most important part? And I know we'll get into some other things here, and I know we're not going to do a whole episode here on spiritual psychology, but I'm very interested if you could just give us an overview of what that is for the listeners out there. Sure, sure. Let me just finish up real quick. I didn't even give the last part of, of the practice. I became managing partner. I sold my practice in 2019, and I've been working with my own business coach for 12, actually 13 years now. He's been planting the seed, Doug, you'll be an amazing coach. Why don't you teach to many firms? Why are you just in one firm? And that's what launched me into Tiger Consulting is I was able to raise three junior partners to partner. I was able to be bought out. Timing was perfect right before the pandemic. And I started with uh, six clients within six months. And now I have over 25 clients and two private uh, groups for group coaching. That's great. So that's a nutshell. So, Doug, real quick on that point, are those individual clients or those firms or firms? And I usually deal with the firm owner. And for a few of my clients, I deal with the leadership team and really focusing on firm culture and leadership skills. Uh, for some of the other clients, it's more based on financial best practices. So, spiritual psychology, great topic. So, the premise of spiritual psychology is we are divine beings having and using this human experience. The premise is we are divine. As a divine being, we are perfect. There is nothing wrong with us. We're part of God, part of spirit. What breathed us, and we don't have to use the word God. Let's leave religion out of this. If 
what is breathing us is that spark. That spark to me is part of a higher power. This is what I'm buying into. If I'm going to go through life, I like to believe in something. I love this philosophy. I never tell someone what to do. Everyone has their own answer. So it's just coming to, if it makes sense and you like it, why not? So if we are a divine being having and using a human experience and everything on this earth plane is for our upliftment and learning, we're only here to learn. And my coaching is all about, let's experiment. Let's try something. If something is working, great. How can we make it better? If it's not working, doing the same thing is not going to change it. So how do we come up with a new idea just to experiment with something different? So the main concept, divine beings having and using a human experience. I mean, there's so many aspects to spiritual psychology, but psychology, the main difference between psychology is psychology is based on the premise, we have issues, let's fix them. Spiritual psychology is you're already divine. Let's remove all the barriers that's preventing your creativity, your flow, your secret sauce from coming forward. What are you here to contribute to in this world? Let's find that. Psychology is, let's fix a psychosis. Are you neurotic, ACDC, this or that? Now, there are serious health issues that really need traditional psychotherapy and therapy. Spiritual psychology is a philosophy on life. Use everything for your upliftment. How you respond to the issue is the issue. Between stimulus and response, there is a gap. In that gap, we have a choice. That's Viktor Frankl. So how do we pause and not be reactionary, but be uh, deliberate in our response? So I love the concept of between stimulus and response, there is a gap. Let's not jump to conclusions. So there's so many great teachings about how to live a healthy life and you know healthy boundaries. You know, how do you create a work-life balance? Healthy boundaries. One of my favorite books is a little book called Zen and the Art of Happiness which I've given, I think, to all of our team members here at EMI. And what I loved about the book is the premise of it is, which is really the Zen philosophy, which is everything that happens to you is the best possible thing that can happen to you. I tell my kids that every day because something happens, you get an injury. So I'm telling them this is the best possible thing that can happen to you, which gets you to think about, you know, why and how can I use this in my life? It's a learning. To your point, like it's a learning situation, right? Everything is a learning situation. And I think it's great. How do we find the blessing in the learning? Because you just talked about an injury. If something happens, where's the blessing in that? And the black belt skill, the mastery of that Zen book is, no matter what happens, can we stay neutral? Ask the question, where do we go from here? And what's the best path forward with the information we have at hand? And that's the key phrase. Because as an engineer, as an architect, information can change daily. If we have new information, our decision might be different, but we can only make a decision based on the information we have at this point in time. In fact, another one book that I was just reading over yesterday, again, The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday, which is really good too, has a lot of the same mentalities, right? And he was saying, you know, when something happens to us, at that point, we can't change it. So if any energy that we're putting against that is not good energy, like we're just kind of wasting our energy. Instead, we have to think about the learning process and moving forward from it. Right. And you mentioned a couple, any resistance. So I talk about gratitude and I always start all my coaching sessions with a, a two minute meditation and we end on gratitude. Always starting with gratitude for yourself, for all that you are. Gratitude for your family, friends, 
clients, staff, and gratitude for the learning opportunity each of the people provide. So resistance, if we're in gratitude, I truly believe we cannot be in resistance. To be in acceptance of what is doesn't mean you're being weak and victim. It's almost being empowered. So by being in acceptance, and you said acceptance of what is because we can't change it, allows us to then say, how do we want to move forward? And then I would add from a place of neutrality and loving. Loving doesn't mean weakness. Loving means you're accepting what is, you're in a neutral place, and you're moving forward without hurting yourself and without hurting others. That mindset in itself, I think, is really important as a professional, as a business owner, as an individual, right? As someone going through life, period. I think it just benefits you in a lot of ways. And I'm sure that's going to tie into a lot of the stuff that we're going to talk about here today. And, and so basically, at this point, with you know more than 40 years of experience in the industry, how do you define work-life balance in the context of a demanding profession, Doug, like the AE industry? I think it's all about setting healthy boundaries. You know, in the early 80s, when I was in New York, I had friends that worked with IMPay, and IMPay was methodical on coming in at eight, working a solid eight hours, and leaving at five. They didn't have overtime. They budgeted their projects so there wasn't overtime. And somehow we lost that concept. Somehow we're not managing projects if we have the right fee and we know how many hours it's going to take to get the job done. Yeah, there are some exceptions, some challenging clients, some hiccups, all of that. But why can't we manage our firm to get the work done within a reasonable work life, within a reasonable 40-hour week, which would allow for a work-life balance? And I think it's just shifted over time that back then, the computers didn't even exist. It was still drawing by hand. I think the computers have made, I'll just talk about architectural engineering, the, the AEC industry, has made it more challenging because clients expect it to be done immediately, and it's not. And that puts pressure on the staff. So to me, the work-life balance is about setting healthy boundaries and really being authentic to still, you're still working very hard. I mean, a lot of people think, oh, you know, you're not working hard. No, I'm at work. I'm working really hard. When I leave, I'm recharging myself. And I truly believe that if we're are filled with joy outside of the office, that sense of joy comes into the office. If we're fulfilled in the office, that joy goes outside. But if any one of those two starts to bleed, we're being a little bit drained. So if we can give from a cup that's overflowing, that's infinite. If that cup starts to diminish in volume and, and level, we're drained. Our battery is being drained. Once a battery is drained, it's dead. But if you properly keep it charged, it lasts for a long time. So that sense of balance is almost, how do you keep your battery charged? And if you burn out at work, it's going to overflow and cause, could cause stress in your outside life. If you have stress in your outside life, that's going to carry over to your work life. So to me, both of those together allows you to fire on all cylinders, give from that overflow and have your batteries charged. Not easy. I find it's becoming more and more important as we grow because I think a lot of it is the technology, quite frankly. And I'm a big fan of Cal Newport, author of Deep Work, and he has an awesome book, his newer, one of his newer books, A World Without Email, which I really love as well, which his premise is basically like, you know, with all the asynchronous messages today, we just don't have any time for deep work or deep thought. 
in a world like the AEC industry, we really need to sit down for a few hours and work on projects without being interrupted. This idea of giving people space is important. White space. Right. Just time to think, time to process things on your own. But I think also what's important to your point is with these boundaries is you need to help your clients understand that you're not going to get back to them in three minutes, but you may get back to them in four hours, right? Or six hours and that's fine, right? So, you know, the world's not going to blow up in six hours. The project's not going to blow up. But a lot of times it's like we're creating these expectations because of the way that we work these days. Correct. And I think it can be part of your story of how you sell yourselves that, listen, we respond within 24 hours. I don't even think it has to be four hours. Respond within 24 hours. Nothing is going to fall apart. And I have found half the time, if I tell a contractor, I'll get back to you in a day, they'll call me the next day and say, hey, we figured it out. (laughs) That's true too. More often than not. I know this is a little bit of a different topic going off on a tangent, but even with some of our team members here at EMI, I was talking to someone today and she was saying, you know, I hope you didn't mind, but I kind of just ran with the client and did this with that. And I said, listen, I'm never going to be mad at someone for taking initiative and trying something. If it doesn't work out, we'll sit down together and say, hey, maybe next time try this better. But that's the kind of things that we want you to try to do, right? And grow and not have to us go back and forth so much because that's another thing that, you know, causes us some time and some energies. A build on that is my partner always said, sleep on it. If there's an important email you have to get out, an important response you have to get out, an RFI that you're not clear about, just sleep on it, come in the next day, have an intention that you want to resolve this. And intent, I use bedtime intentions all the time, you know, kind of resolve this in my nighttime travel. So it comes to me and just come into work and boom, the idea is there. Quite often, leaving work, letting it gel in your mind, how you're going to respond, coming in the next day, it'll go a lot easier, quicker, and smoother than trying to do it in the moment when it might be something that triggered you. I sometimes will just write emails one day and send them the next morning and reread them, right? Because like sometimes you're responding in the moment and you're like not thinking clearly and stuff like that. So it's helpful. So Doug, you know, balancing work responsibilities and personal life, like you said, it's not easy. And so talk a little bit about how you personally have managed to strike kind of a healthy balance between your professional commitments and your personal well-being. Once again, I was so result-driven that I wasn't in the moment. And it took me a long time to realize, and I'll use the analogy of the quest for the Holy Grail. Have you heard that? That's st- oh, yeah, sure. The quest is the Grail. There is no Grail at the end of the quest. So if we can just realize that this is all there is, now is all there is. And it took me until my 50s to figure that out. Now is all there is. So after I went through my program, I was seven years into my partnership. I was not home for dinner between Monday and Friday. I missed my kids growing up. After the program, I went into my partner and I said, listen, I want to be able to leave Monday and Friday. I want to coach my kids in the Little League. I want to be home for family dinner. We were 51, 49%. I said, what do you want? He says, I want 80%. I said, fine, take 80%. I just gave it away. I wasn't compensated, gave it away. And then I said, I'm having a balanced life. And it was a choice. I gave up a lot of equity, but I wanted to have him feel good have me feel good. And I made my family a priority. I coached all three of my boys, highlight of my life. I love it. Once I'm coaching now, I created a schedule that I absolutely love to have that work-life balance, but I walked my talk. I gave up a lot of money to say what's more important to me is a work-life balance. Can you have both financial success and a work-life balance? 
Yes, and it's going to be very challenging. It's going to be being ruthless in your time management. You make the point that it's ruthless, but at the same time, part of the reason I think it's hard is because of the habits like over the years that we've all developed and that society has pushed a little bit on us in terms of social media and instant interaction. One of the things that I've done, and I think I've mentioned this a few times on the podcast, is a couple of years ago, I just decided all social media is going off of my phone immediately. And I just took everything off of my phone. And, you know, I'll use LinkedIn on the computer if I need to, but it was completely the first week or two, it was like, oh my gosh, I can't, I'm like looking to click stuff. And then like, after that, I'm like, that was the most amazing thing that I ever did in my life because, you know. I'm not brave enough yet. I've given up Facebook. The only thing I'm on is Instagram. I hey, don't do LinkedIn on the phone. Yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah. I mean, I think Facebook was the biggest problem, you know, because it's a lot of mindless scrolling, I call it. But, you know, and I'm also a big believer in the 80-20 rule, you know, like 20% of things in your life are driving like 80% of your happiness. And so if you're scrolling on something, looking at all these other people that you don't care about, it's just a wasting your time, right? It's taking you away from what's important. So preaching to the choir. I do want to throw out one other book recommendation. You've been giving out a lot of book recommendations. Um, Atomic Habits by James Clear. James Clear. Yeah. Excellent. Great book for figuring out why you do what you do and making microscopic changes. So a lot of my coaching is about microscopic changes. If you try to bite off too much, it's never going to get done. So what's the smallest thing we can do to make progress? And there's that, his little graph of uh, starting at angle. You know, if you make, can make a 1% change over time, that tiny angle there is going to be a magnitude factor of, of X to show the improvement. He's got a really interesting story himself too, which I think he tells in his TED talk about how he was injured and how he got on this path. So yeah, it's a good book. And listen, habits drive everything in our lives. So you know, making those small changes, like you said, over time can have amazingly big impacts. And one other thing I want to mention here that I found to be really interesting, and you reminded me of this when you talked about being ruthless in your habits, is I'm always looking for more examples of this, like Cal Newport and doing the deep work and people that have been able to do that. And I read about General George C. Marshall, who was a very influential character in the military way back when. And one of the things that he did was he actually completely revamped the whole way that the army was run, which basically no one said anyone could ever do because of all like the red tape. And he did it. And he had an amazing system for like how only certain people could talk to him at only certain time for him to be able to get all this stuff done. I wrote an article summarizing all of his thoughts and what he did on my LinkedIn. I'll have to put it in the show notes for this episode, but it reminded me very much of what you said, because it's not easy to have work-life balance. You have to put habits in place or uh, rules in place, guidelines in place. And if you're within an organization, it's really has to be done kind of across the organization or your team at least, or else you're going to be kind of swimming up upstream. There's two comments I want to throw in there. One is I'm a very disciplined person. To me, the ultimate discipline gives you the creative freedom. I wake up, I work out like it's brushing my teeth. I don't even think about it. I just go in, I do it, it's done. And I consider that morning routine as brushing my teeth and health, it's not a sport. It's the exercise that I need. It's drinking a, eight ounces glasses of water. It's just done. Playing hockey, tennis, golf, you know, those are all fun activities, but that's not my exercise. My exercise is meant to take care of me. Running the office, we had systems in place. We had templates in place. We had 
procedure that allows the creativity to thrive. Once you have the systems and processes in place, you don't have to think about it. I wore for 10 years a black t-shirt and jeans. That's my closet. I didn't have to think about getting dressed. I was like the fly, Jeff Goldblum in the fly when he opened the closet and he had five of the same. I did that for 10 years and it just made my life easy. And ruthless doesn't mean you're nasty, doesn't mean there's any negativity. I, I think words are so important. And the intention to me behind ruthless is just being clear, authentic, in alignment for what you believe in, which goes into core values, mission, vision for a company. You need to be really clear on what the organization stands for. And then a great leader inspires and everyone gets on board and buys into that vision. That's all part of the discipline. It's having all those processes in place. So then you can have the creativity. That's where people misunderstand is that if you're creating all these processes, isn't it becoming a little bit like overwhelming or you know mechanical? But in, in essence, it's really not because it's giving you the freedom that you need to have, like you said, that creativity and have that open space that you need just because you need the processes to handle all those other little things that get in your way. Right. You don't have to think, how does the set go together? How do we dimension right. this? How are the notes written? All of that is given. So for our listeners that are, you know, working, busy working professionals in the AE world, project deadlines, client demands, what are some strategies or approaches that you could recommend for them to kind of maintain a healthy work-life balance? Two-part question. So the first is about managing workflow. And I think it's laying out a game plan. When you're given a project, it can be overwhelming. So the old joke, how do you eat an elephant? One forkful at a time. But if you put that elephant in front of you, it's scary. I use the concept of three-foot tosses. And we did a real-life example. This is a team-building exercise in, in corporate culture. You stand 40 foot apart, you're doing the ring toss. How many tosses are you going to get 40 feet apart? Almost none. 20 feet, none. 10 feet, maybe from five feet, some, three feet. Three feet, you can get almost every one. So the concept is, how do you break your workload down into three-foot tosses? And then how do you set yourself up for success? What can you realistically get done in a day and a week? And to lay out your week and to discuss with your manager for the managers to discuss, not dictate, to discuss with their team, this is what I've budgeted. Is this realistic? To have buy-in from the team. So it can be top-down, bottom-up. Either way, even if you're a junior person and someone gives you something to do, you should try to figure out how much time is it going to take and then have fun, gamify this. Can you get it done for that? And if not, communicate that with your senior staff. So issue one is really workflow and understanding uh, what you can get done. This ties back into the healthy boundaries and managing expectations, both with your staff and with your clients. And the second part is finding out what works for you to balance this out. It's not one size fits all. How are you going to balance out family, exercise, diet, meditation, hobbies, this body, mind, spirit scenario? What's right for you? Because my sense of exercise might be different than yours. That's okay. But it's for you to actually, as you're going back to the white space, to say, what is the life that you want to create? It's just a choice. Create that life now. It might not be exactly what you want, but be clear on what you want. Do you want a work-life balance? I have some clients where their hobbies is architecture. Their ideal vacation is going to a city, looking at architecture, drawing architecture, going to art shows. That's their life. That's great. 
So the concept is, if it's in alignment with what you truly want and who you truly are, that's balance. It doesn't mean you have to stop doing the work. If to you, if you love the engineering, if you like visiting projects, if you like going to museums, if it's all work-related, as long as you are in alignment and choosing this, if the life is if you're choosing, I'm all in agreement with that. But if you're feeling shoulds or feeling have tos, then there's not alignment. So the balance is for you to describe, define as much as core values, mission, vision. What is the life that you want? I don't know if I mentioned, I moved up to Ojai, a tiny 7,000 square foot town. I created a little gift for my wife and I made this ideal scene of a meadow with a tree. And I built this beautiful model with like railroad little things. I mean, the people, a quarter inch high, the tree, the meadow, the stream, uh, we had some horses and that was my vision. And we came damn close to that little model I made like seven years ago. So it's defining what do you want your life to look like? So the second part is really defining what your life to look at. That can be through a vision board. It can be through a written description of what you want, you know, what you're looking for. And I would write what you want, not what you don't want. So an example of that would be, I don't want to have stress. Instead of writing, I don't want to have stress. I want to have life, a life filled with joy. The universe cannot tell the difference between what you don't want and what you want. So if you say, I don't want stress, it's going to give you stress because that's what it's hearing. It doesn't understand the negative. So speak in the positive of what you want. And then for managing within the office, it's really being clear on a workflow at every level of the organization. I think as technical professionals, sometimes we struggle a little bit with the big vision like you're talking about. But if we get the vision down, we're very good at creating the steps we need to take to execute to make that a reality because we are that's kind of how we think. But sometimes we need a little help just stepping back. In fact, Another podcast guest that I had recommended a book to me that I really liked that was called Where Would You Be Five Years From Today? It's just a book. It's not long. It's maybe 15, 20 pages, but it has some questions in it to your point to make you think about what you want in the future. Because if you want to make that happen now, you need to start thinking about that, right? You know, and like take action on it. The only time is now. So I wasn't happy until this, 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 this. And now I'm saying I'm enjoying now. I'm happy now. I love where I am. I love what I'm doing. And I could have had this 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And luckily, my kids are so emotionally in tune with understanding it's all about now. My middle son is is uh, with a company that offers Work Your World. So as long as their company has an office in the city, you can go to that city and work from that city. So he took two months to go to Paris. I'm saying, oh my God, make you say, Dad, I'm doing it every year. I said, that's great. As a mentor in the AE industry, Doug, how do you kind of emphasize the importance of this balance, this work-life balance in one's career development? Are there specific tips or practices that you encourage professionals or industry to adopt? I think there's a, a saying, take care of yourself so you can take care of others. It's the concept when you're in an airplane, put on your mask first. That's not being selfish. But if enough people took care of themselves so they can take care of others, the world will be such a better place. So as a leader, how are you taking care of yourself so you can take care of others? So even as the junior architect that's working from home, 
that might be alone, are you doing everything you can to nurture yourself in a positive way? Are you eating healthy, exercising, socializing, going out? Take care of yourself, and then you can participate and take care of others and be a better team member. So I would encourage people to really think about, are they taking care of themselves in all aspects of their life? And that would allow them to contribute more and to have that balance and realize that that balance is achievable. It's possible. I tell people all the time, you could work eight hours a day and go to the gym for an hour, or you could work nine hours a day and you'll probably get more done if you work eight hours a day and give yourself a break and an exercise and things of that nature. I've always found that to be the truth. When I was in architecture school, I never pulled an all-nighter. I just never had the need to. So one night I said, hey, I just want to see what this is about. So I timed myself. I said, starting at eight in the morning, it was finals week, so we we're doing all the drawings. From eight to 12, I got like three drawings done. From 12 to six, I got about three drawings done. From six to midnight, I got about two drawings done. From midnight to 6 a.m., I got like half a drawing done. So I just knew I was doing a test. And it was so obvious after that, that come in fresh, get the work done, be recharged outside of work and be able to just come in, be efficient and leave. You have to know yourself too, in terms of when you work well and your habits. Like my wife likes to do things at night and I just tell her like, I'm, I'll be honest with you, once it hits like nine, 10 o'clock, the only thing I can really do is relax, maybe read a book, maybe watch a baseball game. I just can't think about anything because I start early. Like I get up at 5 a.m. So I'm done. Likewise, I'm a morning bird. But what is your power time? It's not about what's more, what's my power time. I'm not telling right. anyone, you know, get up the next in the morning. I'm saying, let's figure out what are your power times and get the most critical work done in your power time. And that's something I think over time, it could change, but you also just be maybe become aware of it as you start working as a professional, you figure out kind of what's working for you and you kind of have to really try to flex with that the best you can. When you prioritize your work-life balance positively, it can have an impact on an engineer's performance and job satisfaction. I want you to talk about this a little bit because I think that, again, going back to what we talked about before is that it's become in the industry a little bit of a, a connotation that if you have work-life balance, you will not be successful in engineering. You won't become a partner in your company. That means you're not working enough. And I'm just wondering if you can just talk around that a little bit because I don't think that's true. And I've seen people who do the opposite of that you work with a lot of people, you talk to a lot of people. So maybe you can just talk about that a little bit. That kind of, in my opinion, it's like kind of a misnomer. If we look at almost any sport, there's a time to accelerate and a time to recover. So auto racing, they're revving their engines, but they come in for a pit break. Between races, the car's totally rebuilt. Marathon runners, train, run, recover. You know, almost any athlete, it's train, run, recover. You might say, I'm going to do a three-year spurt to really make partner. I wouldn't put that same energy in when you're a recent graduate, but at the right time in your career, talk to your partner and say, listen, I'm going to devote a little extra time for this next one, two, three years. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's coming from a place of choice, not from a place of should or have to. It's coming from a discussion. It's coming from a plan. You know, where do I want to be? What's it going to take to achieve that? It might not take a lot of extra. You could talk to the partners and say, listen, what is expected to be a partner? And if you can get done those, what's being asked of you, 
within the normal work week, then there shouldn't be about time. It should be about the value you're bringing. If one of the goals of being a partner is the ability to bring in work, do you have that ability? Some people bring in work and it's like, it's so easy for them. And that's a gift. So what is your gift? What can you do where it doesn't feel like drudgery or work to really excel? And can you reach a partner status on that skill set? There's a difference between doing the work and moving the firm forward. Leadership is about moving the firm forward. Every leader is going to have to do the work as part of their career. But what are you doing to move the firm forward? And what is your skill set to allow you to move the firm forward? And then it's not going to feel as much like drudgery or work. It's your wheelhouse. You know, it's figuring out what is your wheelhouse. There's that classic four square grid in the upper left is you like it and you're good at it. In the lower left is you don't like it, but you're good at it. In the upper right, you like it, but you're not good at it. And the lower right, you don't like it and you're not good at it. Think about that upper left cord. You like it and you're good at it. That's going to allow you, because if you love something, it doesn't feel like work. Because once again, it's not about nine to five. It's not about saying, I'm just going to stop. It's about, you know, as you said from the very beginning and what I believe in, do what you love and love what you do. And there's going to be times when you can get that done in a four-hour day and then feel confident about leaving. And there are times where you have to put in a 12-hour day. It's never going to be eight hours forever. That consistency is a myth. But be aware when you have to work extra that it's of your choosing. It's telling your spouse, listen, I've committed to this. I know it's um, it's going to take a little extra Monday and Tuesday. Friday, I've arranged I can take Friday off and let's go do something special. It's that balance where it's never, I'm not looking for consistency every day. I'm looking for on average over a span of, of a couple of years. Yeah. And I like that a lot because what it is, and I think this really is a big theme of everything we've talked about today is it's about being more strategic and thoughtful in the way you show up every day in terms of if you want to create that balance for yourself. Like you're saying, it's not saying you can't work more than seven hours a day. It's saying if you want to, if you have something, a purpose that you're looking towards a goal for a client or something and you're intentional about it, that's great. I just feel like a lot of us go through the motions sometimes and we're not really thinking about what we're doing. We're doing this because it's kind of like the standard. Autopilot. Right. So let's talk a little bit about, as we wrap up the last couple of things here, about tools, technologies, time management techniques that you might recommend for engineering professionals to kind of optimize some of their work processes and create that time for their personal life. I love the concept of calendar blocking. And I love having colors in my calendar. My calendar is broken up into basically seven colors. I have personal. So I literally have in my calendar, I'm looking at it now, from 6 to 7.30 is my workout and meditation. Personal is purple. Dark blue are my client calls. I would have then uh, you know, one color for design time, uh, one color maybe for production, or maybe design and production could be together. I had my business development and marketing as a color. I had my wife time as a color to make that a priority. And AIA, AIA was a huge part of my life. I had that as a element that came in. So I love calendar blocking, leaving white space, don't have back to back to back, leave a half hour between certain meetings. I love having email response time as consistent and maybe at the end of the day or beginning of the day, 
So you just bundle all your email responses together. But the concept of calendar blocking is to lay out regular times. If you want your client meetings to be from nine to three, you block out nine to three. Well, that's too long. Let's say 10 to two. You can still have time before 10 and time after two to get other stuff done. Whatever works, whatever level that you're at within the firm, lay out your calendar. And I consistently have meditation every day. I have family dinners in my calendar, even though my three boys are out of the house, they'll have 6 p.m. family dinner. You know, that's our dinner time. And I try to make that happen. I put clean the pool. I have Sundays, you know, where are we? Nine o'clock, clean the pool. Again, being strategic, right? And being thoughtful about, you know, what you're doing and not just going through the week doing whatever I want to do. You're making sure that the personal things are weighted just like your professional activities. They're an appointment. They're in there. That signals to yourself that they're important, right? Yeah. You know, I have 15th, pay my taxes. You know, like it's in there. Okay, got to do that. <laughs> Can't miss that appointment. And they're recurring. These are all recurring events that are just infinite, no ending. You know, I just have it in there. And by the way, I've done this myself. I do calendar blocking as well with colors. And I think if you have something on your calendar every week, and you're not doing it, then there's a misalignment to what you talked about earlier, right? I mean, because like I have something on my calendar right now, which is like visionary time for the company, which is important, but it seems like every Friday morning I want to do it and I'm not getting to it, which means there's like something that I have to kind of make an adjustment. on. So I guess what I'm getting is it's a good way for you to catch stuff like that where you can say, I've kind of earmarked this as important, but I'm not really giving it that importance. So there must be some kind of disconnect going on there. Yeah, I completely agree with that. You know, and sometimes for that kind of disconnect, Anthony, um, and if I can just offer a, an idea on the spot, I would say maybe go somewhere to break the routine. Go to a park where you can just sit down. Go to a place that inspires you and go to a museum. Go, you know, whatever inspires you to get out of the house, to get out of where you typically are doing all these other things to see if that'll break the pattern. Once again, if what you're doing is not working, Something has to change. What kind of final advice can you share for engineers that are kind of striving? They want to drive better work-life balance. Are there any maybe practical steps, mindset shifts that they can implement to kind of start to create that more fulfilling and sustainable career long-term? I think being, you know, we've said it a few times, it's being aware of the decision you're making, being present in your life. And to me, ordinary enlightenment is the ability just to be aware of every decision, to be aware and creating a life of your choosing, to get out of autopilot, to just consciously say, I'm going to design from nine to 12, to consciously say, I'm going to make being home for dinner a priority, to live consciously. So if you're doing something, you're choosing to do that, not just on autopilot. And that's a huge shift. And okay, so let me, let me add to this because this is a great, great analogy with it. And I heard it from my dad. I don't know where it originally came from. But there's four levels of consciousness and competence. There's unconscious incompetence. You're not even aware of it. You're just incompetent, not even aware of it. There's conscious incompetence. That's the first step. You're aware of it. You caught yourself and you can shift. There's conscious competence where you have to think about it, but before you do something wrong, you think and you say, okay, I'm consciously, you're making it correct in the moment, but you had to think about it. Then there's unconscious competence. 
So we all start by changing a habit as being, once we did it wrong, we catch ourselves. So I can get upset with an AT&T lady on the phone for tech support. And then in the moment on the call, I can catch myself and say, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I was really rude to you. You know, that's unconsciously incompetent. Consciously incompetent is to feel that thought that I'm about to say something to this lady and change it and just laugh. Oh my God, I was about to say this. And here's what I really want to say, you know, and then to just be aware of doing it competently. And then the ultimate is unconsciously competent. But I love that those four stages of awareness. We did a lot of work around awareness when I went to executive coaching school. And it was very helpful because sometimes people get into the victim state where they feel like, I can't do anything, right? It's kind of like, woe is me type of thing. And you have to kind of move yourself to ultimately to, I have the power to do what I want to do and you know create things. But the opposite of victim is empowerment. So victimhood, empowerment. And there's obviously a spectrum between it. Yes, to live from a place of empowerment. We are going to come back with Doug and just do two more minutes of a couple of quick career-related questions that we're going to kind of put them on the hot seat, and then we'll wrap up. So we will be right back. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, we are back with Douglas Teeger. Doug is a, an architect. He's a coach. He's focused on really inspiring people to do what they love and love what they do. And now, Doug, we had a very interesting discussion around work-life balance. I'm going to finish off by throwing a couple of questions around career development. You ready? Sure. Do you have any specific rituals that you practice every day? You actually mentioned if you're ready, you know, whether it's a morning routine, lunchtime routine, it seems like you have some rituals and habits. The first one is upon while I'm in bed, when I just wake up, whether by the alarm or naturally, my first thought is an awareness to say, I am grateful for my life. I am grateful for myself. I am grateful for my family. I am grateful for my wife. I am grateful for my children. I am grateful for my friends. I am grateful for my clients. I am grateful for my things. I am grateful for my life. And before I move, before I get out of bed, I'm just eyes opening. I am grateful. And I try to start my day. My first thought is, I am grateful. And then I say what I'm grateful for. At night, my wife and I, not every night, we did it for years pretty consistently, but we look at each other and lying down facing each other. And this is an important STEM sentence. Something I'm grateful for about myself is, I had an amazing conversation with Anthony today. Something I'm grateful for about you today is, you made the most amazing healthy dinner from the veggies in our garden. That was amazing. And then we do it three times. She would do it. Something I'm grateful for about myself is. Something I'm grateful for about you is. And we would do that three times. And it's just beautiful. And some of them would be really just ridiculous. Something I'm grateful for myself is. I got a parking space right in front of the bank so I could run and run out. It doesn't have to be serious and heavy. It's just to be in gratitude. So if I were to leave with one thing to try, try to wake up with the awareness. I am grateful. I would think most of our listeners have an apartment or a house, have enough food to live, have clothes on their back. That's not true for everyone in this world. Are healthy, have access to healthcare if they need it. All of those are not true for a lot of people. So feel that gratitude. If you have friends, you know, reach out to them. I've just been thinking about you. Be in gratitude. 
and just realize how much gratitude there already is and to focus and pick a couple things each day to really say what I'm grateful for is game-changing in terms of your mindset and how it can shift things. Your thoughts are really driving you. That's important. Right? And we can't control our thoughts. So let's be very clear. We can't control our thoughts. So a meditative response is, let my thoughts go. You know, Watch your thoughts come, watch your thoughts go. But what you can do is shift it when they come. And they say, oh my God, that was a really negative thought. You know, Let's try to reframe that. Right, which goes back to the consciously competent, catching that, being aware of it. Catching that and say, oh my God, that was a lot of anger in that thought. So I know we've gone back and forth today about different books. I tend to ask someone in this part of the show if they have one book or a couple books that stood out for them in their career. I know you gave us a couple. Is there any other that come to mind related to what we've talked about? For firm owners and anyone interested in leadership, I love traction. I talk about it in all my webinars, um, Traction by Gina Wickman. It's just a foundational book for setting up a business and understanding the importance of marketing, operations, and finance, getting the work, doing the work, being paid for the work, and everything that ties into that. And if you're not familiar with Traction or Gina Wickman, I believe he developed the EOS, Entrepreneurial Operating System, which is a system that can help you grow a business similar, you know, kind of like what Doug was just saying, you know, making sure you're doing things in different aspects of the business. We use it actually at EMI and it's very helpful. Yeah. And I have clients that have a EOS implementer and me and very different things. Thinking back of some of your managers in your career, and not asking you to name names, but if you think about maybe your some of your favorite managers, what made them your favorite? Just trying to understand in the AE world, you know, what makes for a great leader, someone who can really interact with their people, in your opinion? I will give a name because he's no longer around, but it was it was remarkable. So I was 28 in 1988. I was working on a $30 million private residence. I was running a team of 14 architects. I was running a team of 20 consultants. I was in the meeting. The contractor was nasty to me. You know, I was a little kid, didn't know anything. And the spec writer, who was 78 years old, took me under his wing and just said, Doug, let me help you. And he was patient, loving, kind. He didn't treat me like I didn't know. He knew I didn't know. And he said, here's how you should prepare for the meeting. Here's how you should respond when the contractor does that to you. He respected that I could learn and treated me with just loving kindness, showing me the way. So how would you like to be treated back at that time in your career? You know, and I do a lot of inner child work and I talk to clients about, and I'll use just the mail for now. How would you talk to your little boy to explain something that you would have liked to have heard? So how would you have talked to that to you as a junior architect by a manager? Do you want to be beaten up? No. You want it to be taught how to fish. You know, hey, here's, let me show you how to fish. And he was amazing at showing me how to fish. And I look at that as my master's degree in architecture. I learned so much from him and stayed involved in his life for about a decade after that. And he was amazing. And it just goes to show you the impact that someone can have, right, on someone in your career, someone that you look up to. And then the importance of mentors. I mean, I would find people I can reach out to. When I first came to LA, I came in touch with Herb Nadell, that was a, a developer architect. And I said, hey, can I call you when I started my company? You know, how do you write this contract? 
And he was so open and generous and, you know, he was a huge mentor. So find mentors. And if you don't like the mentor, find someone else. All right. I've got one final question for you. We call this our career elevator advice question. If you got into an elevator with a young engineer, young AE professional, and you had about 30 to 40 seconds with that person, what would you tell them in that short period of time? Do what you love and love what you do. Be present and use everything for your learning. Doug, we had a lot of fun here. We talked about a lot of important things, you know, in all seriousness, work-life balances. I think what will help you to have an enjoyable career and enjoyable life, and, and you shouldn't have the belief that you can only have one over the other. Or think it'll happen sometime in the future, or I'll be happy when I retire. No, now. Create the life you want now. Doug, thank you so much for spending some time with us here on the Civil Engineering Podcast. I really do appreciate it. Anthony, thank you as well. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Doug. I really enjoyed it. I feel that he had some real practical advice to share. And again, he is someone who is not just talking the talk, but he's walking the walk when it comes to a lot of these work-life balance strategies. He does them himself. That means something because I think work-life balance is something that people sometimes talk about, but then they don't have balance themselves, right? And that's not Doug. And that's why I really enjoyed talking with him and I hope you'll follow up and check out the show notes for this episode and try to really, you know, take some of his advice and implement it into your career to kind of have the maximum well-being that you can have. And you can find the show notes for this episode and all episodes at civilengineeringpodcast.com. There you will find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during this episode. And until next time, I wish you the best in all of your civil engineering career endeavors. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to download the latest version of our AE Industry Trends Report to get answers to the questions that you want to ask your staff, but you may be afraid to do so. How long will the great resignation last? How long should you allow employees to work remotely? And how are successful firms using data to grow sustainably for the long term? You can learn the answers to these questions and more by downloading the report at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.